0: We're going to be looking at the first four verses of Hebrews chapter 2. So let's just read it together and then we'll pray. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. It says, For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also bearing witness with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that is before us this morning. And Lord, we are still convinced that it is the inerrant, infallible, very word of God, and we rejoice in it. We are so thankful, Lord, that you've made us a church that loves your word that devours your word, that is hungry for the word. Indeed, your word is more wonderful than honeycomb or the sweet drippings of honey. We thank you. It's more precious than silver, more precious than gold, but more than the word of God, we love you, the God of the word. And we're so thankful for what you're doing in our midst. Lord, you're doing a great work, and we rejoice in it. We love you, Lord. We thank you for so great a salvation, Jesus, that you would drape yourself in humanity. That you would subject yourself to being born of a woman and laying in a manger. That you would allow yourself to be beaten and mocked and scourged and crucified for us. But you rose, Lord. And you, and you alone conquered sin and death and the devil. And you have given us new life. And Lord, we rejoice We're so thankful for the new life, for the resurrected life that we have in you. And we ask that this morning, Lord, you would fire warning shots across our bowels if we're drifting in any way. If in any manner we're beginning to fall away from intimacy with you, that you would snap us to attention, Lord. If there's anywhere where our hearts would begin to grow hard or cold, that you would wake us up, that you would revive us, Lord. Revive us according to thy word this morning, as the psalmist wrote. And Lord, rattle us out of apathy. We confess that we are the American church, with all the good, the bad, and the ugly. And certainly we are characterized to a certain degree by apathy. Holy Spirit, come. Rattle our cages. If there be anyone among our number who is just going through the motions, playing the game, wake them up, Lord. Don't let us be a church that is found sleeping in these last days. It is high time to awake and to arise. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you'd come and teach us now. Teach us some glorious truths from thy word. And, Lord, you know how unworthy and altogether unable I feel and am to preach your word. So we ask together that you'd please anoint me, that every word that comes from these lips would be from you, and that, Jesus, you'd get all the glory today. People would leave here talking about you, that our hearts would be on fire for you, Lord. Revive us according to thy word. We ask it together in Jesus' name, amen. 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 Now, this passage that we have here in Hebrews chapter 2 is the practical application of the theological truths that were given to us in chapter 1. The practical application of the theological truths that were given to us in chapter 1. Notice that it says in verse 1 of chapter 2, For this reason, or it may read in your translation, Therefore, that denotes that there's something that came before that is related to what's going to come immediately. What's going to happen here in the Word of God this morning is that we're going to be called to action. The Bible is going to call us to action. The Scriptures do not allow us to have knowledge without response. The Scriptures always call forth action from God's people. Take, for example, the book of Romans. The book of Romans has 11 chapters devoted to theology. And then in the 12th chapter, all the way to the end of the 16th chapter, it goes on to practice. And so the Bible gives us doctrine, but then it expects a response. We're given theology, but there is an expected application. We learn about orthodoxy, but there is to be orthopraxy. And so now that we've had a wonderful theological treatise on the identity of Jesus Christ in chapter 1, we're going to be called to account. The Bible is going to ask us, as it asks these Hebrew believers in the first century, what are you going to do with what you now know about Jesus Christ? So it says, for this reason, the reason being who Jesus is. Now in chapter 1, we spent 15 weeks studying about it. We learned that Jesus is better than the prophets, that he is better than the angels, that he is the unique son of God, that he is the heir of all things. Jesus is the creator of the world and the sustainer of the universe. He's the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's nature. Jesus is the high priest of perfection. He's seated at the right hand of majesty on high. He has a more excellent name. He's the one whom the angels worship. He is the exalted king, the Lord of righteousness, the anointed one, the eternal one, the unchanging one, and the ultimate conqueror. Amen. That is Jesus as presented in Hebrews chapter 1. And then it says in verse 1 of chapter 2, For this reason, or therefore, for this reason what? There is always a what. There must be a response to the truth. James 2.22 says that we are to be doers of the word and not merely hearers. And so... The author of Hebrews presented these frightened Hebrew Christians who were living in light of persecution under Nero, the Caesar of Rome. He presented them with a high Christology, a high and right and wonderful view of the superiority and the supremacy of the person of Jesus Christ. And the reason he did that is because the superiority of Jesus Christ is to now be an anchor to their souls in the time of difficulty. And they are facing difficulty. Their very lives are being threatened because they're Christians. And the superiority of Christ is absolute supremacy. The fact that he is exalted and above every name is to be an anchor to their souls. An anchor because there is a tendency in God's people from time to time to drift. There is a tendency in God's people to drift. And so the verse says, for this reason, We must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Now, we've all got an idea of what the word drift means. You've got connotations that come along with that. But if you were to look it up just in the Oxford American Dictionary, it says this. Drift is to be carried slowly by a current. It's a good one. I want you to remember that. To drift is to be carried slowly by a current. To walk slowly. Remember that walking is often analogous in the New Testament to the Christian life. To walk slowly, aimlessly, or casually. To move passively, aimlessly, or involuntarily into a certain situation or condition is what it means to drift. Hold on to that. Phraseology in that definition is very good. The Greek word that's used here is parareo. And it's got the same idea as the English word drift. That's why it's translated drift. But if you look it up in a Greek dictionary, it reads a little differently and it helps us. To drift is to slip away, suggesting a gradual and almost unnoticed movement to swerve or deviate from something such as the truth. To fall aside. So here we have this definition of the word drifting, having just been warned in verse one that there is a tendency for God's people to drift if they don't pay careful attention to what they've heard. And what we discover about drifting is it's not primarily doing something that we should not have done, that's transgression. Drifting is not primarily doing something that we shouldn't have done. Drifting, rather, is failing to take positive action where we should have. Failing to do the right things. It's merely allowing things to slide, to drift, to be carried slowly by a current, to be aimless or overly casual. One author says it this way, that it describes the carelessness of mind, which perhaps being occupied by other things is not aware that it is losing ground. The carelessness of mind being distracted with so many other things, and there are so many things competing for our attention, is not even aware that it is losing ground. The same Greek word for drift was often used as a nautical term denoting a ship that had lost its mooring, a ship that had come loose. And so there is this metaphor then emerging of a ship being swept past a shore anchorage that was in reach you see in the old days they didn't have powered boats You know, they had sails, and when they were coming into a dock or an anchorage, they had to time it just right, because if they didn't drop the sails soon enough, they'd ram into the anchorage or the dock or the shore, whatever. But if they dropped the sails too soon, then they would come up short of the anchorage, and they would find themselves slowly drifting away from something that was so in reach just a moment ago. That's the picture of drifting. And the danger being highlighted in our text here is that of a great loss taking place in the Christian life, but occurring unnoticed. A great loss, an ultimate shipwreck, as we're going to see in a moment, but occurring unnoticed. This verse could read like this with all this imagery. Therefore we must the more eagerly anchor our lives to the things that we have been taught, lest the ship of life drift past the harbor and be wrecked. It brings to mind some imagery of a ship that is drifting toward destruction because the pilot is sleeping. And there is a situation for so much of Christianity. Drifting toward destruction because they slumber. The book of Hebrews warns us about this when it gets to the practical part of the book of Hebrews in chapter 13. In verse 11 it says this, And this do, knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is at hand. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. So there are frequent warnings, we see it also in the book of Ephesians, for the Christian to wake up we find ourselves slumbering at the most inopportune time, even as Peter and the boys in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the Lord said to them, Could you not keep watch for me for one hour? Pray lest ye enter into temptation. And Peter found himself, as many of you are, sleeping when he should have been aware, when he should have been alert, when he should have been on guard. And drifting is an epidemic in the American church. Drifting is an epidemic in the American church. It may be the sin that has most greatly beset the church in America, that of drifting, of not paying careful attention to the light that has been given to us. Because America has been blessed by God Almighty. There's no question about that. We have been blessed. And there was a time when the hearts of Americans were turned toward the Lord. And America became the theological center of Christianity for a time. It started in Jerusalem, Jerusalem of course, but through missionary endeavors and over time America became the theological and missionary center of Christianity. But Americans and the American church have drifted and America is no longer the theological or missiological center of Christianity. Africa has become The theological, missiological center of Christianity. We are still sending missionaries to Africa when we need them to come from there to here. It's not funny, that's real. America needs missionaries who are on fire for the person of Jesus Christ because the church in America is sleeping and drifting, and it is at epidemic proportions. We are drifting. And what we've got to understand is that there is a great danger in drifting. You see, it's not that often that we just plunge ourselves into some disastrous sin. It's not usually the way that Christians do it. But we do often find ourselves drifting into sin. And drifting into even apostasy. There have been some in the Christian church who have deliberately, in a moment, turned their backs on God. They've left the Christian faith. There's been a few who, in a moment, deliberately turned their back on God. But for most of those who have turned their back on Christianity, it has been a day-by-day, week-by-week drift. It's usually not an abrupt thing. It's a drift, and the thing about a drift is it's almost unnoticeable. C.S. Lewis once said this, you show me a hundred people who have turned their back on the faith and I will show you only a few who were argued out of it. The vast majority seem to have just drifted. I've been doing organized ministry for 10 years now, a decade. And in my short time, I have seen hundreds of people fall away from the faith. Hundreds, perhaps thousands of people drift away from the faith. I can remember back when reality was a little college ministry at Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara, and we had hundreds of college kids on Friday night, so on fire for the Lord. You've never seen anything like it. And now when we have little reunions and we get together, the question always comes up, where's so-and-so? What happened to her? Why isn't she walking with the Lord anymore? What happened to him? Why did they fall away? What happened to their faith? When did they shipwreck? In our short life as a church, we've been a church less than five years, we've seen hundreds of people come and go. Not all of them have drifted away, but many, indeed hundreds, have drifted away. It's an epidemic in the American church, this drifting away from the Lord. And drifting causes us to almost imperceptibly involve ourselves in some situation that seems innocuous on the surface, that seems harmless enough. Drifting has a tendency to lull you to sleep, to make you unaware. And then the Christian has a tendency to involve themselves in some seemingly innocuous situation, only to wake up one day and find themselves shipwrecked and those who love them most heartbroken. We have to be continually on guard against drifting, continually uh, guarding against the danger of drifting. Even in the midst of a move of God and God doing wonderful things, we've got to be aware lest we fail the next generation. I want us to see this from the Joshua generation. Let's return to some familiar ground. The book of Joshua, chapter 24. Joshua, chapter 24. Joshua is familiar because it's a book that we studied before Hebrews. But it's also familiar because we just finished reading our one-year Bible reading as a church. And we're now just a few chapters into the book of Judges. But here in Joshua, we know most of us the story. I won't belabor it here. I won't recount it. But here in Joshua 24, Joshua dies. In verse 29, at the age of 110, Joshua dies. And then in verse 31, it says this, And Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua and had known all the deeds of the Lord which he had done for Israel. So everybody that was with Joshua, remember the Kadesh Barnea generation had died away because of their disobedience. They wandered in the wilderness and they died off except for Joshua and Caleb. So we have the Kadesh Barnea generation from Numbers 13 and 14. Then we have the Joshua generation, a whole new generation that enters into the land. They're there fighting for decades. Joshua dies at 110. And everyone that was a member of that generation that saw Joshua and saw what the Lord did and the elders that came after him, they stood firm in their faith. And that's the attestation of the last chapter here in Joshua. And it repeats that in Judges chapter 2, verse 7. Judges 2, verse 7, says the same thing. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, who had seen all the great work of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. Now the general statement is that they had served the Lord. But what becomes evident very quickly in the book of Judges is that there was a subtle drifting that was happening in that generation. They had seen great things. They were the ones who experienced the land flowing with milk and honey. They were the ones who experienced as the Jordan stood still a mile upstream and they crossed over. They had seen the walls of Jericho come down. They had seen the sun stand still in Joshua chapter 10. They had seen great and mighty things but there was an imperceptible drifting happening in this generation. How do we know? Because the book of Judges continues in chapter 2, verse 10, and says this, and all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. That's an Old Testament way of saying they died. So the Joshua generation dies. Look. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples. Who were around them and bowed themselves down to them, thus they provoked the Lord to anger. So they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtaroth. They didn't know this next generation, the generation of the judges, they didn't know what the Lord had done for Israel. The previous generation seemed to be standing firm. They remember what the Lord did, and they continued. But this betrays, this reveals that there was a subtle drifting. For they failed to fulfill the commissioning of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy comes just before Joshua. And if you want to look at Deuteronomy chapter 6. Verse 1, now this is a commandment, the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it. This is Moses speaking to the Joshua generation before they take the land. So that you and your son... And your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life and that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be very careful to do. Sounds very much like Hebrews chapter two, verse one. Listen and be very careful to do that it may be well with you. And that you may multiply greatly just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. It seems as though maybe perhaps the Joshua generation was doing fairly well until we get to the next verse, verse 7. And you shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit down in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, meaning they shall be near you and they shall be as frontals on your forehead, meaning the, the word of Christ shall fill your mind and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. You see the Joshua generation failed in the commission to equip the following generation. They saw the great things of the Lord, but when the next generation came, it says in Judges 2, they didn't know the things that the Lord had done. They didn't know who the Lord was, and they began to follow after false gods. And do you know where that got Israel? Do you know where God got Israel when they worshiped the Baals and the Ashtoreth? They came to the place of child sacrifice. Israel began to burn their own children in fire to false gods. They would take a child, a baby, and they would lay it on hot coals and let it be consumed by the flame. Because a previous generation had drifted. It was imperceivable to them. They didn't even notice it. In fact, they didn't even notice that they weren't telling their kids all about the Lord. And it shipwrecked an entire generation. You see, when God's people drift, there's always going to be consequences. Dire consequences. I want you to turn back to Hebrews chapter 2 now. When God's people drift, there's always going to be consequences. Look here in verse 2. We're going to come back to verse 1 and finish up a few details, but look what verse 2 says. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? In verse 2, it's talking about. The law that was delivered to Moses at Mount Sinai. We already learned in chapter 1 that angels were involved in that. Galatians 3 says so. Acts 7 says so. It was also in the rabbinic teachings that somehow God employed the angels in delivering the law to Moses and to the nation of Israel. So that's what it's talking about when it says the word spoken through angels. Notice it proved unalterable, meaning it was firm. It was steadfast. It was the very word of God. It was not to be trifled with. It wasn't to be manipulated. It wasn't to be changed. It wasn't to be rearranged. It was the unalterable word of God. And notice what it says. Anytime there was a transgression against this word or a disobedience, there was a recompense from God. To transgress means to cross the known boundary. God said, here's the line, here's the demarcation, don't do that, and you do that. That's transgression. Disobedience here in the Greek means to hear amiss. It's the idea of, I heard it, but I don't really want to hear it. It's like many of us do when we come to church. Well, he doesn't mean me. (laughs) That's not for me. I hear it, but I mean, yeah, you know. That's what it means. Notice what it says. That the word delivered through angels was unalterable. It was the very word of God. The law delivered to Moses, to Israel, Mount Sinai. And any time it was transgressed or disobeyed, there was judgment from God. There was judgment from God. God always judges disobedience. This is very unpopular in society today. This is becoming very unpopular in the church today. We get uncomfortable when we talk about God punishing people. God punishes disobedience always. That is no longer the politically correct message. It's not even the popular message in the church. And if you want to find a church that doesn't talk about that, there are many. But I am bound by the Spirit of God to declare to you what the Word of God says. And the Word of God says that God always punishes disobedience. Jesus Christ was mutilated upon the cross because of my disobedience. God punished him. God always punishes disobedience. But in the old covenant, in the Old Testament, there was a judgment retribution for transgression. The Lord said to Israel, "Thou shalt remember the Sabbath and keep it holy." And there came a day when one man in Israel transgressed the law of the Sabbath. He did not observe the Sabbath. He was the first one in Israel to do it. Moses grabbed him and said, "What are you doing?" And then Moses and the elders said, What do we do? And so they prayed to the Lord, What should we do with this man who broke the law? And the Lord said, Kill him. Take him outside the camp and stone him. Kill him. God punishes disobedience. He is not your uncle, he is not your grandfather. He's not the cowboy in the sky. He's not the big man upstairs. He is a holy God that is a consuming fire who is altogether righteous. And the wages of sin is death. Jesus Christ died upon the cross for you and I that we might live. He rose from the dead to offer us that newness of life. Now, If the old covenant and the word delivered through angels was unalterable and when violated punishment was dealt out. How shall we then escape it says in verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation. Because the new covenant is far greater than the old covenant. That's the whole point of the book of Hebrews. And Jesus is better than the angels, and he's better than the prophets, and he's better than the priests, and he's the one who made atonement for our sins. And so if they were in trouble for transgressing the law, how much more do you think we are in trouble if we ignore so great a salvation? How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Speaking about the salvation, it says that it was first spoken through the Lord. It was confirmed to us, the author of Hebrews speaking, by those who heard, meaning the disciples. And God also bore witness with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His will. God bore witness and bears witness in the church that this is the one true gospel, that there is salvation in no other name. There is no other name given among men under heaven by which we can be saved other than the name of Jesus Christ. And what the author of Hebrews is arguing for is if the old covenant required punishment when it was disobeyed, how much more the consequences if we neglect so great a salvation as we have in Jesus Christ. See, listen. Drifting is dangerous. And there are always consequences to drifting. That's what we saw in the Joshua generation. And it's the same in the new covenant. The consequences aren't mentioned here. This is just one of five warning passages throughout the book of Hebrews. But the consequences are outlined in Hebrews chapter 6. I'm going to read you an excerpt. It's on the PowerPoint. It says in Hebrews 6, Let us press on toward maturity. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the power of the age to come, that's talking about Christians, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. This is one of the most disputed texts in all of the Bible as to the interpretation, as to what it means. And Bible expositors have gotten very creative to try to get around it. But it seems to say that if you enter into the faith if you come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, if you engage in relationship with him and then abandon that through stagnation first and unnoticeable drift secondly and then apostasy third, if you abandon that, then your salvation is lost. Now that is a disputed interpretation. I am not talking about when you sin. You cannot out-sin the grace of God. He died to forgive our sins. I'm not talking about the Christian that walks with the Lord, loves the Lord, blows it horribly, horrifically, and comes and says, Lord, forgive me. There is always forgiveness. There is always grace. There is always restoration. I am talking about the person who begins an unnoticeable drift, who did not pay close attention, who neglected so great a salvation. You see, the book of Hebrews very clearly teaches this that if we don't press on toward maturity, we will stagnate and then slide toward apostasy. It's very clear. That's why you've heard me say many times that if you're not moving forward in your Christian life, you're moving backward. There's no staying put. Remember that drifting is going with a current. There is a current that is anti-Christ in this world. And as a Christian, you are contrary to the world. And if you are not growing in your Christianity and moving forward, you are at best stagnating, you are more realistically drifting, and the Bible says that you are in danger of apostasy, of no longer trusting in Jesus Christ for your salvation your heart growing cold and dying, removing yourself from the covenant relationship with Jesus Christ. He says in Hebrews chapter five, by now some of you should have been teachers, but you're still stuck on the milk of the word of God when you should be involving yourself in the meat. There's no forward momentum, he tells them, so you're in danger of drifting, which means you're in danger of apostasy, which means you're in danger of losing your salvation you see if you're not pursuing wholeheartedly jesus christ if you're a lukewarm christian if you're a sunday christian if you're just religious if you're just playing a little christian game you will find no comfort in the new testament for yourself you will find no comfort whatsoever If you are a sincere Christian who is seeking to abide in Christ and remain in His love and is pursuing Him, you will find comfort page after page after page after page. You will find there the great and merciful high priest who is touched with the feelings of our infirmity, who forgives our every sin over and over again. But if you have tasted of the heavenly gift and are neglecting that salvation, my brothers and my sisters, The Bible seems to say to you that you are in great danger. It says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? What does it mean to neglect? It means to fail to care for it properly, to not pay proper attention to, to disregard. Do you see why this is a problem? This is a problem because a high percentage of the church in America does just this with Jesus they don't pay proper attention to. They fail to engage in their faith rightly. They altogether disregard. They want to come to church and have their needs met. It's consumeristic Christianity for sure. They'll show up at church. They'll do their time. But there's no pursuit of the living God. There's no engaging in the heart of Jesus Christ. There is, from Monday to Saturday, a disregard. And I'm telling you, my brothers and my sisters, you are in danger. You have begun a drift. And the Bible offers you no comfort today other than to repent. It offers you no comfort other than to repent. We must Check our hearts today and see if there's any way in which we are drifting. Any area in which our hearts have gotten hard or they've begun to grow cold. Is there a time that you look back on as the halcyon days, the good old days? Oh, back then we were so on fire for the Lord. It was the tent days or whatever it was. And oh, back then just this and that. If you have a back then, you have drifted. If you have the good old days in the Lord, you have backslidden. These are the good old days because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I want to speak gently because I'm younger than many of you. But don't believe the lie that your faith cools off as you mature. Oh, when I was young, I was so on fire, and and now I'm more mature. No, you're lukewarm. I don't see anything in the Bible that tells me that I shouldn't be more on fire for Jesus Christ at 90 than 19. I don't see anything in the Bible. In fact, I'm convinced that I should be more on fire when I'm 90, should the Lord tarry, than ever before, because I will have known Him longer. And I will be more in awe of his grace and his wonder and his love and his mercy and his beauty and his holiness and his majesty. I am convinced that I will love my wife more at 90 than I love her now because I will know her more. Why not our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Don't believe the lie that your faith has to cool off as you age. You've known Jesus longer? Don't tell me that. Show me that. You should be more on fire than the young people in the church. You've known the Lord longer. The spiritual truth here is that when we disregard, when we neglect, we drift, and that is dangerous. This book was not written to non-Christians; It was written to Christians. We're not talking about people that reject the gospel.'re talking about people who are neglecting the gospel. We're talking about those within the church. One author says to ignore the great salvation found in Jesus is to find oneself unable to escape the consequent wrath of God and the judgment of hell. There is no other offer of release. We've got to check ourselves, church, because it's a disease, it's a cancer in the church, and it's rampant. It's nearly unchecked in America. The hour is late, it's time to awake, but there is given to us a remedy. There is a remedy And remedies are often so horrible. My little Daisy loves. She's just three years old. And when she gets little colds, you know, I have to make her take this little cold medicine so she can sleep. And it says cherry flavor, but really it tastes like the devil's toe jam. (laughs) And it's horrible. My poor little baby hates it, but it's this remedy that helps. And my friends, I have friends and family members, and they get cancer. And they've got to undergo this treatment and and uh, chemotherapy and all this stuff, and it's a horrible remedy. It's a horrific remedy. It helps, but it's horrible. But wait a minute, we've been given a wonderful remedy for what's wrong with the church, for this dangerous drifting. We've been given a beautiful remedy. It says in verse one: For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. That is the remedy. How much attention have you been paying to the Word of God and the person of Jesus Christ? It's got to be closer. That's the remedy. More attention given to the person of Jesus Christ, more of Jesus. And when it says we must pay closer attention, that word must in the Greek is so powerful. It's defined as a need. It means there is a need of something absent or wanting. It is necessary. It means that one must, one ought. It has need of. It is inevitable in the nature of things. It speaks of what is right and proper in itself and by law and by duty. It's a word that's used in John chapter 4, 4. Speaking of Jesus in the King James where it says, And Jesus must needs go through Samaria. That's the weirdest English you've ever heard. Must, needs? We don't talk like that, right? I must needs food. That is the weirdest. We don't use that kind of language because the English can't quite get it at how strong this word is. Must, needs, go through Samaria. It is imperative. It is unavoidable. Jesus had to go through Samaria. Why? Because there's a woman there that was an adulteress and she was in a well and she needed to know about forgiveness and salvation and the messiah and so Jesus must needs go through samaria that's how strong this word is it's the same word right here for this reason we must pay closer attention to what we have heard the word pay attention here in the greek prosecho it's a technical term for bringing a ship into port or for bringing a ship to anchor, or to holding a ship in a certain direction. And so again, with all this imagery of the language, we could read the verse this way. Therefore, we must the more eagerly anchor our lives to the things that we have been taught, lest the ship of life drift past the harbor and be wrecked. Is your soul anchored? Hebrews chapter 6 verse 19 says this hope we have is an anchor of the soul a hope both sure and steadfast an anchor to the soul are you currently intimately connected with the person of Jesus Christ through what he did upon the cross and his resurrected life the word here pay attention in the greek it also means to attach oneself to to adhere to are you attached to Jesus Christ Have you adhered yourself to them? Are you glued to them? We'll look at John 15 in a minute. that speaks about that. It also means to hold the mind or the ear towards someone. To pay attention. Listen to that. To hold the mind or the ear towards something. For this reason, we must very carefully hold the mind toward the things we know about Jesus Christ. Colossians 3, 1 through 3 comes to mind. If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden in Christ. We've got to set our mind on the things above. We've got to be focused on the things of Jesus Christ. And this verb in its form means this, that this paying attention is to be active, constant, and committed. Talk to me about your life Monday through Saturday. Talk to me about your life Monday through Saturday. What the Bible requires of us in Hebrews chapter 2 because of what we learn in Hebrews chapter 1 is that we are paying attention to such a degree that it is active, constant, and committed. And the adverb is in the sentence which means more earnest or closer. Whatever we are currently doing, church, I'm going to endeavor to say it's not enough. For the hour is late and the current is great. And we are living in a world that is more and more anti-Christ and so hostile to his cause. Therefore, we must make sure that we are paying closer attention. Active, constant, and committed. You see, there's no question from the Bible that Jesus calls us into commitment. But the church in America has often been sold easy believism. Easy believism. That is, they've been told that if you'll simply agree with the fact that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, then you'll be forgiven. I am telling you, it is not a mere intellectual assent that is required. It's not that you merely agree with that historical truth. You must put the full weight of your being upon who Jesus Christ is. You must put the fullness of your trust in the finished work of the cross and his resurrection from the dead. You must fully surrender self, repent, and yield to him wholeheartedly. Church has been told that it's an easy believism. But if you just raise your hand at some time, you're in. Jesus never taught that. He called for full commitment. He said to Peter in Caesarea Philippi, if you want to follow after me, you've got to deny yourself and pick up your cross daily. Peter had already said, thou art the Messiah, the son of the living God. He agreed with it. He said it. He raised his hand. It wasn't enough for Jesus. Jesus said, okay, deny yourself. Pick up your cross, which means come to the end of yourself and follow me. Jesus calls for absolute commitment. And he says in Luke chapter 9, verse 62, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. You see, what the book of Hebrews is telling us, I'm convinced, is this that the audience had heard the gospel and they had responded and they were born again. But that wasn't enough to guarantee their salvation. They had to continue to meet the demands of salvation. They had to stay in the faith. If they were to abandon the faith, then their salvation was lost. That's why there's such a danger in drifting. Hebrews chapter 6 says, once you've tasted and then fallen away, it's impossible to renew you to repentance. You see, drifting denotes that there's a competing current. And that current wants to sweep us away. Jesus Christ has called us into relationship. In Luke chapter 8, turn there real quick. Luke chapter 8, the parable of the soils comes to mind. Please, when I say quick, I mean quick. We're running out of time. We've got to watch over the condition of our heart. Jesus gave the parable of the soils in Luke chapter 8, and he uses the illustration of of a sower spreading out seed, and the seed is illustrative or analogous to the word of God. And he gives the interpretation of the parable to the disciples, and we'll just look at a little part of it in Luke chapter 8, verse 13. He says, And those seeds that fell on the rocky soil... Are those who, when they hear, or those persons who had the rocky soil on which the seed fell, are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, they agree, they say yes and amen, but these have no firm root, and they believe for a while, but in time of temptation, fall away. They believed, they raised a hand, they showed up, They said the amen, but the proof is in the pudding. And where the rubber met the road and the difficulties of life, they fell away. Verse 14, and the seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures from this life and bring no fruit to maturity. Notice, they received the word, they heard it, But at some point, they drifted from it. They were distracted with worries and riches and the pleasures of this life. This is why Jesus said, he never sold us a false bill of goods. He told us from the beginning, if you want to come after me, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. And he warns us in this parable that the word of God can be choked out by worries and riches and the passing pleasures of this life. And it said there, they bring no fruit to maturity. That's why in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1, the author says, let us press on toward maturity. We must go toward maturity because in the Christian life, if you're not growing, you're stagnating. And if you're stagnating, you're drifting. And if you drift long enough, you apostatize. And if you do, you are lost. Man, I wish I could paint that some other way for you, but I'm, not just, I'm just not seeing it. But verse 15, in the seed and the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. Look what Jesus said in John 15. Go there, please. Quickly. Look what he says in John 15, starting in verse one, the words of Christ. He says, I am the true vine and my father is a vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears bears fruit, he prunes it that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. He's talking to his disciples, those who are his. Verse four, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit Of itself, unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. What is he telling us here? He's saying, as long as you stick with me, it's going to be okay. You might blow it. You might get off track. You might sin in a horrific way. You thought you'd never do that again. But if you stick with me, it's gonna be okay. There will be some pruning, but you stick with me and it's gonna be okay. But then he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. I don't have a fancy way out of that one. If you're not abiding in Jesus Christ, you'd better get right today. Because my friend Tony Constantino died this week. Went to Hawaii to visit his brother. He fell in Starbucks, hit his head, and he's dead. Today is the day to get right. If there is any area in your heart in which you are drifting, in which you have grown lukewarm, in which you are rebelling, repent today. Repent today. Matthew chapter 7 is the last passage that we'll read. Matthew chapter 7, the words of Christ starting in verse 20. Matthew 7:20, so then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, look at this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Not everybody that says, I'm a Christian, is actually born again. Not everybody that says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Many will say to me on that day, many, he says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? In other words, didn't we do a lot of Christian stuff? We did Christian things. Verse 23, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. We've got to check ourselves. Have you put your full weight of who you are in the fullness of your trust in the person of Jesus Christ for salvation? Have you really honestly repented? Brothers and sisters, if you have been born again, there's going to be change in your life. You're not going to be perfect, but there's going to be Change. I will not send people to hell with a smile on their faces. If there is not change in your life, you haven't been born by the Spirit of God because He changes lives. It's not some stupid religion. It's not a glee club. It's not some fun little decision. It is the Spirit of the living God of the universe coming upon you and giving you a brand new nature. If your life isn't changed, you're not saved. but there is a remedy. He says in verse 24, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them, sounds just like Hebrews chapter two, verse one. Everyone who hears these words and acts upon them has a right response to what they've heard in the word. Maybe compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock and the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and burst against that house and yet it did not fall for it had been founded upon the rock. He tells them there, everything is going to be okay if you just respond to the word. If you respond to the word and the soil of your heart is soft and the word can take root and you don't let it get choked out by your other cares and concerns, everything will be okay. But then, Verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them will be like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and burst against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. There's no way around that. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, the Bible says today? Are you neglecting the person of Jesus Christ? Are you drifting in any way? Jesus confronted a drifting church in Ephesus in the first century, and he said to them in Revelation 2, I have this against you, that you have left your first love, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. What are we doing with who Jesus is? What are you doing with the light that has been given to you? For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift. Amen? Amen. Lord, we thank you for this sober warning. Lord, thank you that you love us enough to offer to us sobriety. Thank you that whom you love, you discipline. Thank you that you admonish and you warn. And Lord, you desire that none would perish, but all would come to everlasting life. And so Lord, if there's anybody here that's played a game or been religious or whatever, whatever, and they've never really repented and trusted in you and engaged in you for their salvation, draw them today, Lord, have mercy. Thank you that you're a willing Savior. And Lord, for those of us that have neglected so great a salvation, what can we say but have mercy on us? We ask for mercy, Lord. Thank you for the promise that as we endeavor to draw near now, you'll draw near to us. Lord, we confess that we've been wayward and we've been wrong and we've neglected so great a salvation. Lord, revive us where we've died. Break up any fallow ground. Tear down any walls that ought not to be in our heart. Lord, don't let us drift. Anchor our souls to who you are and the truth of you don't let your people drift, Lord. We're sorry for the church in America that's drifted so far. We'd like to be a little tiny church on the beach here that is walking with you. So help us, Spirit of God, come and revive us. Carpets are here if you want to get on your face. Communion is here to remember the finished work of the cross. Prayer team will be up here if you guys need help.